Today on Sagittarian Matters, taco tasting with Rocco Coyotis, and then advice on art, coming out, making a living, and more with my guest, Lisa Congdon. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters, Sagittarian Matters, what's the Rocco rhymes with taco. <laughs> and we have the number one Rocco of America, North America here on the podcast today. Rocco Coyotis, welcome back. Thank you. For the 15th time, Sagittarian Matters. I wish that we had recorded while I was taking the first bite of that, that vegan taco. God damn it. Here, do you want to just recreate it? Oh, we're sitting on a bench with our tacos. What do you think? I don't know if I can fake the enthusiasm that I had for for that first bite. It was like really everything that I had been wanting. Because we'll review. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, Nicole and I have discussed food before, and we're both protein hounds. Like We always want to get the most protein possible in our meal. So when somebody's like, oh, I made a jack- jackfruit taco, I think I don't give a jack shit about your jackfruit <laughs> taco. Well, I'm just like, you give me the protein. <laughs> I'm like, I guess I have to go home and eat some protein or drink a shake yeah. in the bathroom or something. Right. Um, we just went to Senna. Is that what it's called? Sina. Sina. It's a family-run, I think, yep. vegan taco stand in Highland Park in Los Angeles, California that happens on Tuesdays and Fridays. And I've been coming here for about a year. I found it one day. It's across from Donut Friend, my favorite vegan donut place. And it has grown by leaps and bounds. So now there's a long line around the corner because it's so good. It's really good. Um, what makes it so good is the hand-pressed to order uh, taco, nope, sorry. <laughs> Tortilla. Sorry, I ate four tacos and now I'm just out of it. <laughs> I, was trying, yeah. I was like, we need to do this review before both of us fall into the food coma we've just earned. <laughs> hand-pressed tortillas. Those hand-pressed tortillas were so delicious. And then they have a toppings bar with everything that you could want. A cashew crema, um, four different types of salsa. Raw onions Yeah. with cilantro. Just some other raw onions, some limes. We both almost got into fights with different people at the salsa bar. Oh, mine was with a gigantic white man who literally took something out of my hand while I was using it. (laughs) I almost had the reaction of just being like, Jesus, you're not big enough and wide enough to be able to just take everything you want. And then instead I said nothing until he was done. And I said, you can put that back since I wasn't done using it and you felt necessary to take it out of my hand. But you can't put it away. I brought. I didn't. Is that I, a Buddhist philosophy, or where does that come from? <laughs> it's patience, love, and tolerance. Namaste. Namaste. <laughs> you must have a very active yoga practice or something. <laughs> and then I was there, and there was uh, some young entitled millennial and her brother or boyfriend or some man friend and they were taking over the every part of the salsa bar as much as they could with their physical bodies, and they weren't getting out of the way. And I was ready to throw down. Rocco's making direct eye contact with producer Ponyo right now. <laughs> We're both falling asleep. You're both falling asleep. Okay, so I had a taco, tri-taco platter. It's the tri-taco tournament. I had two barbacoa, which I think was soy curls, and one... I think it was so shredded. I don't know. One don't of the same things was gluten-free 
It was the barbacoa. Barbacoa. And yeah. then what was the other thing I had? Al Pastor. The yeah. Al Pastor had their homemade meat, which I think is made out of gluten. For um, sure. It's a glutinous meat. It's it's like, I would say it's like chopped, finely chopped seitan. Finely, finely chopped and spiced seitan. Yeah. Um, it was so delicious. I piled so many things on there. I'm so happy to eat raw onions and go home <laughs> to the privacy of my home. And not have to, like, romantically engage with anyone that would ever feel upset by smelling raw onions. You know, that's, like, the gift of living alone. Yeah. That's the gift. Like if Or you marriage. Know, she doesn't get a say in anything. She said, so now you just go smell like raw onions. You're like, hey. Oh, I didn't need onions. Oh, but did? yeah, did. Yeah. But I still have taco breath. Your taco breath. Yeah. Trisha's going to be like, what were you doing? So it tasted like they had, like, really marinated their um, vegan meats for a long time. That was part of the deliciousness as well. Mm-hmm. Every element of it was so good. Yeah. I overate, though. I had four tacos. I thought, well, whatever, four tacos is nothing. But those tortillas are pressed thick. So it was a lot of um, tortilla. And a shitload of meat. It was like a really big portion i if you had to guess how many grams of protein would you say that that meal had if you had four gluten tacos yep i mean 60 i don't know how many grams of protein 20 each i think 20 not 20 each that's a handful of glutinous meat i would say that that was probably close to 80 grams of protein in that meal I was going to say 150 grams of protein in that meal. I mean, I'm going to say, like, you don't actually need to eat protein it's for the dust. weekly allowance of <laughs> protein. Weekly allowance of protein. Um, and I do want to say I had a vegan horchata nearby. So, uh, thumbs up to Cena Taco Stand here in Highland Park. If you find yourself in the area, you should definitely come with an appetite because what we did, which was a mistake, was that we overate tacos so we couldn't eat a donut because there's no room and I'm trying to respect my my limits um, one day a week. If you're a stoner, here's my oh, hot yeah. tip. Yeah. Get baked. Get a ride out here. There are five different vegan stands yeah. on this street alone and then, so you could get like a vegan pupusa, yeah. vegan tacos, vegan empanadas, what were those little things? Some other vegan th- gobbledygook. The vegan, vegan burger. There's Burger Lords is across the street. Uh, donut Friend is across the street. And then Scoops, which has vegan ice cream, is next door to that. Eat your way down the block. Eat your way down the block. Eat your heart out. All right, Rocco, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Lisa Congdon is a Portland, Oregon illustrator, fine artist, and author. She's the author of the books A Collection a Day and Art Inc., The Essential Guide to Building Your Career as an Artist. She actually has a lot of books, but the most recent of which is called A Glorious Freedom, Older Women Leading Extraordinary Lives. Lisa regularly teaches classes online about the business of finding your voice and making art, and you can find her at lisacongdon.com. I found her in her Portland, Oregon studio on an uncharacteristically snowy February day with producer Ponyo and her dog, Wilfredo. Please enjoy my talk with Lisa Congdon. Lisa Congdon, welcome to Sagittarian Matters. I am so fucking happy that you're here. Really? Yes. This is, I literally, I had a dream about you last night. I can't remember what we were talking about. I think that maybe you were a musician and an artist and we were talking about balancing the two. That's amazing. It's been one of my dreams 
to be on your podcast for a long time. So when you wrote to me, I was so excited. I'm here in your studio in Portland, Oregon. Producer Ponyo has taken your dog's bed where she is biting herself. <laughs> uh, well, Fredo, your dog, is very kindly lending her the bed. And yeah, and you just turned 50. I did in January. So it's been almost two months. I feel, I feel like I really want to take that Sally O'Malley character when I turn 40 because I can't wait that long. I know. I was I actually have to tell you that this young woman who I know, she's probably only 21 years old. She's an illustrator and she's going to PNCA and I've been mentoring her a little bit here and there. And, uh, she was the one who reminded me about Sally O'Malley. Like it took a 21 year old to be like, Lisa, I know your birthday's in a few weeks. Don't forget about Sally O'Malley. (laughs) But I got like sucked into the YouTube, you know, vortex for a few days. Did that sketch come out when she was born? (laughs) <laughs> probably <laughs> probably but her mom's around my age and so i think that maybe like that's how she knows about it <laughs> that you can kick and stretch yeah. and kick yeah. <laughs> i'm 50 i'm 50 well let's get some advice questions yeah. up in here we have a lot all right which one do you want to start with what is what seems most exciting to you i think um oh there was a question about i would like to ask lisa how she found her style and what were her first services as an illustrator did she do logos, patterns, custom commissions, how she started her portfolio? Yeah, so thanks for that question. Um, so in terms of finding your style, I think that's just something that takes a really long time. You just have to draw or paint or do whatever it is you do every day for years. Yeah. <laughs> There's. I'm writing a book on finding your creative voice, and basically I, could, I don't need to write a book. Basically what I could do is just give one piece of advice which is really encapsulates what's in the book which is basically like just show up and do the work like and eventually you'll find your style and try to pull away from your influences which Mm -hmm. is also hard um so if you look at my work from 10 years ago to now you'll see some things that are similar um but i have had a really consistent color palette and i use pretty consistently have used symbolism and things in my work because I'm influenced by certain things over the years, but my work has really gotten better technically because I'm self-taught. So I didn't, no one ever taught me how to draw. I mean, mm-hmm. I took a couple classes, but, and I think if, whether you're self-taught or you've gone to art school, the main thing is just like doing your thing. Cause the more you do your thing, the more your voice, which is not, is more than your style. It's like what you care about and what's important to you, what your truth is, right? Like all of those things come out. Um, So for me, that just took a long time. But I didn't wait until I thought I had found my style to start promoting my work or selling my work. And so that another thing that I did was I got on, I was like an early adopter to social media, which was becoming a thing around the time that I was Mm -hmm. launching my art career. I was just very lucky to sort of like get in there before it became this huge thing. Um, I think if I was starting today, I would feel really overwhelmed by how much talent is out there and how many other people are trying to do the same thing, mm-hmm. right? Um, I started my Etsy shop pretty early on, but, and I think there was another question in here about like, about building an Etsy, you know, building an Etsy shop. I didn't have high sales at all until I took like, I want to say 2012 or so things, I started to get orders every week, but 
it was like crickets for the first few years. But the key was I didn't give up. Like I just kept putting new work in there. I kept trying to promote it in any way that I could. And eventually it took hold. And what happens with Etsy, which is kind of interesting, is that it's like being in a shopping mall. So if you're at the mall, you might go to the mall to go to J. Crew. But while you're on your way to J. Crew, you see this other, you know, you see Forever 21 and you're like, maybe, maybe I'll just, maybe I'll look. <laughs> yeah. So that's what happens in Etsy. And so I actually, for a while, I didn't leave Etsy, but I like started my own shop and I realized I wasn't getting as much traction because in Etsy, once you reach a certain point, your listings start showing up at the top of the mm-hmm. list. And so people who discover you there. Um, and so that really helps. I still think most of my Etsy traffic is just because I talk a lot about the stuff that I make and I listen to what my um, audience wants in terms of what they want to buy. Mm-hmm. But you just have, it's the same idea as like building your style. You have to just keep at it. Like I think there's this illusion that being a creative person is this really romantic experience and if you do it right, then all of a sudden you'll have a following and somebody will want to show your work in their gallery and you'll, you know, it does, does not work that way. Yeah. Like it takes a really long time and yeah. it's just like, you have to have the perseverance to just show up and keep doing the thing every day. You have to love it enough to do it every day because it takes a really long time to get traction. And mm-hmm. even once you have traction, it's just still a lot of really hard work. Well, interacting with people, shipping orders. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like choosing stuff, responding to people, whether or not you decide to do the thing they asked you to do, exactly. responding to all of them, yeah, and keeping track of everything yeah. you need to respond to. Right. Every day, there's new right. stuff, right? And Etsy is interesting too because, like, I'm really disciplined, and I have been since the beginning about shipping every week, responding to Etsy conversations within 24 hours. Like, I customer service is like my number one thing, and I have 100 percent, you know, positive ratings on Etsy, and like one time this woman got an original piece of work and she didn't even like it once she saw it in person. And I was like, send it back. I'll give you your money back. Like, I don't like, I don't want it, you know, like good karma all around. Um, so what else, what else was she asking about? She was asking about like, Oh, I hate doing logos. I don't do logos graphic. I'm not a graphic designer. So, um, I've done logos occasionally. I've done some podcast logos for friends and I'll do things for friends sometimes, but logos I feel like are a whole different level. I um, feel always confused about how much to charge for logos because depending on the business or person, it could go really far. And so sometimes I just get it. I'm just like, ah, I'm confused. I just yeah. don't want to do it. I don't do logos or tattoos. And I, I'm curious I, I'm, about you not doing tattoos. <laughs> well, I used to, but the problem is they're super personal. So I'll do them for friends. Mm-hmm. So if you know me, um, and like I'll, and I have time, I'll, I'll do it for you. I don't, you can get any existing artwork that I've made tattooed on your body. I could care less. And I don't, you don't need to pay me for it. Like, I actually love it when people get I like my stuff too. tattooed on. Like I find it to be like the most satisfying thing. And they'll always be like, this is embarrassing, but, or this might be weird, but. And I'm I know. Like, exactly. And that's I'm like, exactly. No, this is incredible. No, no I this, love it. Please send me a picture and I'll yeah. post it. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I, um, but I don't do like commissions anymore because I found that anytime I was designing a logo or a tattoo, it felt so intense. Like it felt like such a big thing that I would, I was so stressed out about it the whole time, like getting it right, that I just wasn't even enjoying the process. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think another thing that like, as you kind of 
do different projects as an artist to make money, you realize what you enjoy doing and what stresses you out. And abandoning what stresses you out, even if it pays you well, is so important. I I remember the other day I was remembering the feeling of sending somebody back her money after she hired me to do a wedding invitation thing that she was like flipping out about. And then finally she got so stressed out. I was like, how about I just... How about we just call it a day and you yeah. just, you know, do something that stresses you out a little bit less than working yeah. with a custom artist. And she did. And I was like, whew, it just felt great. And now I don't like to draw humans for people anymore. Like like a portrait of somebody, like a specific, because they're unhappy with it. And then I'm unhappy that they're unhappy and I have anxiety around it. So I just don't do that. I used to do portrait commissions. I, I still will occasionally do dogs because I find them easier to render. People are more forgiving if they don't look exactly like but people are hard and I used to do them because I was I was grasping at straws for any way to make a hundred dollars even yeah and so I had one experience where this woman commissioned me to paint her baby babies are hard and I didn't realize this because it was like a six-month-old baby and it was really cute and I it was a horrible painting but I ended up I struggled with it so much but I ended up like giving it to her and then she told me she was disappointed and then I said I don't want you to pay me like I, and she, she but then she insisted on paying me so it was this like horrible like guilt thing she was just did she say I'm disappointed yeah oh yeah she was super disappointed and I was like I really don't want you to pay me but then she felt bad because I had like done my best obviously and I think she respected me as an artist this was probably about six or seven years ago and ever since the baby I do not do people anymore because I just find it really stressful um so I should I would add that to the like I don't do that mix. No humans. Well, I have to do humans for my illustration work, mm-hmm. um, and I'm getting better and better. But I feel like rendering historical figures or people I've never met just feels like less pressure than like somebody actually commissioning you to say like like one woman had me draw her a this was a gift for her husband and it was like she's like my age but she had. Um, had me paint her high school like senior portrait where she was in one of those fluffy like feather things and her hair was feathered and it was like the coolest photo but she wanted me to paint it and it was so like I think she ended up liking it but it was a very stressful experience I just yeah like for individual humans no way but (laughs) otherwise if I can draw humans and like no one is standing over my shoulder being like I remember once I did a live pet drawing thing for it was like a benefit for dove lewis and people would come it was called pino and pooch so people would buy wine and then for buying the wine then they got a portrait and this lady was like standing over my shoulder while i was drawing her whippet and was like isn't his neck a little bit thinner than that like just giving me notes as i was drawing it and i was like i want to die i hate this this isn't why i'm an artist like i know oh i know so there are certain things that are the worst. Anyway, the last part of her question was about building your portfolio. And for me, I just made a lot of personal work. I always have, like, I would say 90% of my portfolio is stuff that I make when I'm watching Netflix at night or like listening to podcasts or just um, sitting in line or sitting like at the airport or whatever. I, I do a lot of commissioned work, but it's not always my favorite because it's what somebody else told me to draw. So sometimes it doesn't even end up in my portfolio because um, it's kind of boring. Um, I mean, that there's exceptions. Like, I've had some good illustration projects. But my portfolio from day one has always been the stuff that I want to draw and paint. And that actually always leads to professional projects. So um, I did a lot of projects for many years, like, where I would draw something different every day for a year. Or I would, like, in 2016, the year I had the nervous breakdown, um, I drew – I made a piece of art 
one piece of art a week that was like predominantly in the color blue. So, like, I also like to, like, impose constraints on myself Mm -hmm. to make a body of work that kind of hangs together in a certain way. So, um... I love constraints. Yeah. I did did a self-portrait project where... These aren't in my portfolio, but where I drew myself once a week for, like, a few months. And that was also a bizarre experience. Most of the time, I would, like, take a picture of myself and look at the picture, but then a couple times I try to do it, like, in the mirror, and they're really trippy. (laughs) The mirror thing is crazy. It is. Like, making the same face. I love constraints. That seems very Capricorn. Yes. Constraints and hard work. Yeah. Yes. We um, pride ourselves on um, on being the, the, like, we don't necessarily pride ourselves on being the best at something, but no. at being the hardest worker and, like, trying the hardest. Yeah. You know, putting in the best effort. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> oh, more questions. Okay. I've, let's do a, one of the romantic questions. Okay. Um, so... There, here, do you want to read this one? Oh, yeah. Okay. Hi. I, don't want, I want to anonymously text two advice questions. They're both big questions, but I figure I'd give it a shot. Do you have advice for coming out as gay? I want to come out or at least start to. I have told one friend, but only vaguely. I haven't even told my therapist, and I want to start there. But being a lesbian, it feels like a big deal. Okay, this, so that's question number okay. one. Okay. So... Are you coming out right now on the podcast? <laughs> no. Um, okay. So here, I want to say that I have an answer to this, but I also want to say I don't want to be insensitive to anyone living in a place where coming out is a dangerous situation, yeah. right? So, like, I think it's important to always put out there that, like, I'm about to say something, which is you could probably guess what it's going to be. Um, don't waste your don't waste your time in the closet, basically. Mm-hmm. But I also understand that for a lot of people, they're actually like I get emails all the time from young women who are like living in the middle of Alabama and Tennessee, and like they're they're fifteen, you know. And if they came out, like they're you know what I mean, like their yeah. livelihood might be in danger. So I don't. I know this is not always the right answer for everyone, and for certain people especially young people or people who are living in not safe situations like waiting is sometimes better or getting yourself into a safe situation Mm -hmm. but my experience i mean i came out i'm 50 and i came out when i was 23 so it's i've been it's been so long like it's even hard for me to remember sometimes the details of my own coming out story but my experience with helping a lot of my friends go through this is that what you build up in your head as being a big deal or that people's reaction is often bigger than what it really is, right? Mm-hmm. Like that often we have so much fear about like what people are going to think of us or what they're going to say about us or how they're going to adjust to this new version of us or this version of us that they weren't aware of before that we um, we spend more time sort of stressing about that and then I've had so many friends like for years sort of freak out about it and then finally come out and be like, Oh, that was so anticlimactic. Like people were totally cool with it. And in fact, most people were like, well, duh. You know, did you have a conversation with your parents when you came out or were you outed in some way? No, I actually initiated the conversation. So what happened was I had been dating this woman and we had been going out for less than a year. It was like one of, it was, I was, 23 and she was maybe 24 and um she was we're still friends which is so awesome but like 
she had just ended a relationship and she was still pining over this other person. And I think I was just like a distraction. So the relationship was never meant to be, but I was so devastated when she broke up with me. Like I couldn't stop. I I lost like 10 pounds (laughs) in like two weeks. I couldn't stop crying. I was such a mess. And my sister, who's two years younger than I am, who also lives here in Portland, um, was graduating from UC Santa Cruz. And I had to like go to her graduation and (laughs) during the middle of this, not being able to stop crying, like, I don't think I've ever cried that much in my whole life anyway. And so I'm trying to like keep it together for my sister. My makeup's going everywhere. You know, um, my parents are there. And so like, I'm in the backseat of the car, like driving back to my hometown, which is kind of close to Santa Cruz and, um, with my parents and I'm crying and my mom's like, are you okay? And I'm like, no. And I could like, we had gone out to lunch and I like, didn't eat anything. And I was like, I'll tell you when we get home. And so I like sat them down and I was like, here's the reason I can't eat. And then I'm so upset. Like I'm gay. And I just broke up with this woman just broke up with me and I'm like devastated. And what's interesting is my parents are amazing and they're like, like my dad gave the main toast at my wedding which like had everyone bawling um, because he's told these amazing stories of like his own journey through this too. But my dad, my dad's reaction was um, being sort of like worried about, and remember this was a 1991 or two. Mm-hmm. This was like before Ellen was a thing, like, yeah. bef- you know, there's a lot of buffers now. There's a yeah. lot of examples for your parents to look at, to be like, look, that right. person seems kind of normal. Right. So the mainstream culture has really come around. But at the time, it was very different. I have two gay cousins, and one of them is much older than I am. She's eight years older, and she hadn't even come out at that point. So, like, anyway, so my dad was worried about how people were going to treat me. Like, treat me. He was worried about me. My mom was worried about, I think, more what people were going to think about us because of the stigma. But they were both really wonderful. And I found out from my mom years later that she had gone through this period of mourning thinking that, like, I was probably just going to, like, turn out to be this, like, punk rock lesbian who, like, never got married or, did you know, had a normal life. Um, I don't even think she could visualize what my life could be because in her mind, like, she didn't know any lesbians. So it couldn't possibly be that you could just have a normal life and, like, have kids or that you could be a punk rock lesbian and then go have yeah. – <laughs> get married and have kids, right? Yeah. Like, so um, – and then within a couple of years, I met this woman who I ended up staying with for like eight years and uh we had this very normal life in san francisco and like we both had jobs and like we never had kids but we we had animals and we were responsible citizens and like and i think my mom was like oh so she went through this mourning period at first thinking like the life edges of society right like or the life that she had envisioned for me was like could no longer be and fortunately i ended up with a person who was really amazing and she sort of like helped i think normalize our life for my mother because she was also a super lovable person and Mm -hmm. uh um so that was really helpful but yeah I definitely it was a bigger deal then I think than it is now to come out um and I always encourage people to like just go for it because the pain of staying in the closet and living in secrecy is so much worse than the pain of rejection and I did have people in my life reject me um I have friends from college who still don't speak to me Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it's because they're homophobic anymore. It's just because like we, you know, we had a falling out at the time and while they may have come around by now, you know, our relationship was severed at that time. So, yeah. 
I just I think I didn't come out until I was living in a place where it felt cool to come out. Not cool, but like comfortable to come out. Where like I had options. It was worthwhile. Um, I mean, I, I I got to choose when to come out to my family because I you know came out to my chosen family, which was you know the queer people or punk people or whatever people around me, and they were some people were like whoa, but that was it. It was, like, not a big deal. And then I got to choose when to tell my family of origin. And that was, you know, as hard as I thought it was going to be. But it's still, that's not my day-to-day life. So if I was, like, 14 or something living with a, you know, biological family that wasn't into it, that would be a very different story than me living across the country, emailing my mom, having her freak out, and then me getting to go to, like, a lesbian potluck that night. Yeah. Or something. Well, you know, it's interesting. My My niece, who's 18... Um, came out when she was 13. She lives here in Portland, and it was like her eighth grade speech, basically, it was coming out. Oh and like, God. it just, it it's so heartening to me to like, think about what her, I mean, of course, she's been raised by my sister, who's this amazing woman who like, you know, and she's had me in her life and, you know, my wife in her life for the last 10 years, she came to stay with us two summers. Um, and so for her, it was just no big deal. Like, I don't really, I think she, while she has some social anxiety, I mean, she's a super nerdy kid, like, I don't think any of it has to do with being gay. Like, mm-hmm. it's just so normal to her. Mm-hmm. And I feel like gender identity and fluidity for this generation of kids is, like, so inspiring to me because, um, or that they have access, even if they don't live in a place where that's an acceptable thing, they have access to the internet where they can see other people like them are living normal lives and, um, or are happy or whatever. And that's just not something... Um, I think it's important for, you know, young people to remember also that that hasn't always been the case, you know, mm-hmm. and um, it's been a lot harder. But it's also so inspiring to me that young people are just like, they are who they are. And it's just, for most of them, it's just not a big deal. And mm-hmm. I, I love that. Me too. All right. The second part of their question. The second part of this person's question after coming out is... Do you have advice for someone who formerly pursued a form of art but now finds themselves only getting frustrated and down about it? Even if it still feels important to them, it was a big part of their life. They still like it at times. Should you move on if you keep getting frustrated and stuck, or is there something else worth trying? Signed, confused, and shy lesbian on the East Coast. Um, okay. So I think if – I don't know how old this person is and how long they've sort of been pursuing their thing, their mm-hmm. form of art, but – I do think part of the creative process is feeling frustrated and stuck and figuring out how to work through that. So if you if you love your medium or the thing that you're doing, um, but you're just going through a period where you're questioning it or whatever, I think it's important to stick with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that means taking a break from it and trying other things. Sometimes that means literally like forcing yourself to like work through the messy part of it. Um, that said, if you're doing, if you're engaged in making art in a way that, or like doing how you have, whatever your art practice is, is, um, I don't know, is boring to you or uninspiring, or you're doing it because somebody told you you should do it. And that's what you studied in school or whatever, then find something else. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I think I would, my advice to most people is like, listen to your gut. What is your gut telling you? Is your, you know, and, and like try to go with that because if deep down inside you can't visualize yourself doing that thing 
long term and you really are interested in trying something else, then go for it. Um, but if it's really just like you love that thing, but you're feeling frustrated and stuck, then I would stick with it and like keep working through it. Yeah. I know that's a super vague answer. But there's days when I have not wanted to do my books, but then I'm like, sorry, bitch. It's well, just like you have a dead, like I have a deadline, I'm doing the thing and then I do it. And at the end of the day, it's sat like drawing a tree is always a pain in the ass to me. But if you do it really well, if it's really detailed, like at the time, you're like, I'm bored now. But if you just keep doing it at the end of the day, you step back and you're like, that tree looks awesome. I, I think that it's really important to, I love that example. I think it's really important to embrace monotony. And I think that's one thing that some artists don't have a, I think it's one thing that some artists do really well. Like, um, I was interviewing this ceramics or potter for my, the book that I'm writing right now. And she's like, every single day I make the same form. So my challenge to myself is like how to make this interesting for myself. And sometimes that's just like, I don't know, for me, like, it's like listening to a podcast or a different music or like figuring out, you know, maybe even just drinking a different kind of tea, you know? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's like mixing up my creative process by adding something different. But like, it's true when you draw trees, you're on the like 300th leaf and you're like, I want to stab myself in the head right now. Yeah. But those things are always also the most satisfying to look at afterwards because they're the most detailed or, I mean, usually anything that's monotonous is something that you're doing the same thing over and over, right? So you end up getting really good at it too. As Capricorns, Um, we're like, monotony is worthwhile. Embrace it. (laughs) Embrace the monotony. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I, I mean, I also would challenge this person. I don't know if you do this, but I have a thing where I will never, I will always finish a drawing if I start it because sometimes I'll start a drawing and I'm like, oh, I really fucked this up or oh, this sucks or I don't like this anymore. But I, since I make myself finish every drawing, I usually, if I keep going, will find something redemptive about it by the end and so at the end even if you don't like it you have a finished drawing instead of like a wastebasket full of things that you kind of overthought and just threw in the towel on i had this painting teacher when i was first um taking painting classes and he used to talk about the 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 painting curve so like whenever you start a drawing or a painting it goes i think this could go for any medium everything looks good because you're just starting out. You haven't put a whole lot down. You haven't done a whole lot and you're really happy with it. And you want to stop there, but it's not enough. Like it's not developed enough. It's not finished. And then you get to the bottom of the curve and it's like, it either looks terrible or it's gotten muddy or, you know, you mess it messed up on something or like, it doesn't look like what you were hoping it would look like towards the end but if you stick with it you get back up to the top of the painting curve again or like the art curve I guess you Mm. would call it where you like um you sort of push through that and then you make it work right and I do think that's like the most satisfying thing and even if it's something you don't ever sell or show or whatever on Instagram like you've had the satisfaction of making something work that and actually I would say 80% of the time that happens in the process of drawing or painting or making whatever, like that there's a point where you're like, this sucks, right? I want to rip this up. You're like, what is this? Right. Is this even a thing? It's also true that if you're being paid to buy a publisher or an illustration client to make something, you don't always have time to rip it up. You have to make it work. And so you have no choice. Yeah. I mean, I do have to say, we are here talking about the business of art, but also you can just make art for art's sake. So if this person's getting in their own head being like, no one's going to want this, like maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe you just need to finish it because you're an artist and then let the chips fall where they may and just fall, move on to the next thing. If- right. I think we have this idea now, especially with social media, about the preciousness of everything we make, that we should be posting a picture of everything we make or that everything we make needs to be a finished product to show. And what we don't 
what people don't understand is that most artists have a bunch of stuff going on behind the scenes that people never see, um, especially if you're in the formative years, whatever, and that a lot of your time should be spent just experimenting and making sh- shit that like looks ugly or mm-hmm. that isn't what you wanted it to be. Because you'll never get to the place where you where something looks like you want it to look until you've drawn a lot or you've you know written a lot or whatever it is that, that you're doing. Not to be a Seinfeld, but have you ever noticed that I never try to sell you Blue Apron on the podcast? Or that we do not disparage and bemoan trips to the post office in favor of stamps.com? Well, it is because we have no advertisers. Zero. Producer Chris, producer Ponyo, and myself do this out of the goodness of our hearts. Because we like it. If you would like to tip producer Chris Sutton, who dedicates hours to this series every week, please, 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 please send your tip of $5, $10, who knows how much. That's your business via PayPal. Two, hornetleg at gmail.com. That is hornet, like the insect, leg, like one of his appendages, at gmail.com. If you do this, we will read your name on the podcast. Isn't that exciting? We may have advertisers someday, and we'll rant and rave about free sex toys and mattresses and Blue Apron and whatever, but in the meantime, thank you. We appreciate your support, and I look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it, too. That was Ponyo's voice. Don't be scared. Bye. Thank you this week to Shoshana Ruth Wechter, Mary Pinson, Christy Herod, and Madeline Berger. I have a friend that has a romantic history with many of my other friends. Okay. Lately, I've been feeling a romantic tension, but I feel very guarded as I know this person's love business, and it does not bode well. But we also are dear friends, and they have supported me through a lot. What do you think? I need to just ask them, but sometimes that fucks up a friendship and or unnatural progressions. Brother. I know. Well, I guess... A, what are your expectations? Can it just be fun? And then if if it is something otherwise after the fun, then that's a bonus? And B, are you feeling the romantic tension because you have a crush on them or just because you're bored and you live in a place where there's limited people to date? I would also say, like, if you know that somebody's... If you're interested in somebody and you know that they're like they have a pattern of um behavior in romantic relationships or dating that isn't something that you want like just I don't know (laughs) I think also like when I was younger I would often get involved in those situations just because I was like oh it doesn't you know I just want to see what I just wanted I just wanted to always push the envelope Mm -hmm. like I don't, I know that this person has a history of like things not ending well with whoever she dates or whatever, but like I have a big crush on her, so I'm just gonna like see what happens. And of course, it never ended well with me either. You always think you're gonna be the exception. Oh, yeah, you're never, the, the way they treated other people is the way they're going to treat yeah, you. That's exactly. how they know how to treat people. That's right. So if you are expecting that, it's probably what's going to happen if that's what you're observing. And if you're okay with that, whatever, go for it. But I don't know. Personally, 
I got to a place where I just stopped wasting my time that way mm-hmm. because I also did. I also like the older I got, the more pride I started to develop in myself. Right? Yeah. So well, and there's something a little bit empowering about being like, oh, I can see this person yeah. across the room. I see that I'm attracted to them, and now I see this other thing about them, and now I'm just. It's like from a. It's kind of like as a vegan, there's a lot of food to me that's non-food. Like if I go to the grocery store, like I, I don't even look at you know, the frozen meals section in most places. Cause I'm like, that's like not, none of that is food to me. Like I can't eat it. You may as like, you could put a bunch of cardboard in front of me, and be like the food. And I'd be like, Oh, that's not food. But so there's some people that I'm like, that person's not food where I'm like, right. Oh, that like black hearted sociopath. Right. Not food. That person who's married or whatever, or has a girlfriend. You're like, that's not, that's right. not on the ta- That's not on the buffet. So like, is this person, is it problematic enough that you're like, this is not going to be nourishing. Right. Exactly. And if that's, if you want a nourishing, healthy relationship and you know someone can't give you that, then, uh, you know, just, yeah. just appreciate them from afar too. I mean, I don't know. I was raised Catholic, so I could deal with a lot of sexual tension for a long time. And sometimes that's better than taking it to its natural end. Right. Right. Okay. What's this one? Should we do another one here? Yeah. Um, I recently started a resin jewelry business. And my online sales have been pretty great so far, thanks to friends and family. I'm really struggling with the self-promotion aspect of things and find it hard to A, put myself out there, and B, believe that my pieces are good enough to promote. I also struggle with anxiety, depression, and imposter syndrome, so that's definitely a factor. It's a bit overwhelming. Any words of advice? Well, you have to promote yourself because no one else will. It's no one else's job to promote you. That's right. I would say... um one of the things that I had to get over really early on was I, I couldn't, I remember when I first started my business and there was no Instagram yet. And I was, I don't even think I was on Facebook, but I, I was on Twitter. And so, and I had a blog, so I would like, I would, I was on Twitter a lot promoting my work. I was also rambling about other stuff, but I remember I used to feel like I was my own pimp. Like Mm -hmm. I was, I was both the prostitute and the pimp. And, um, that felt really dirty to me. Like I had to get over this like sense of um, shame I had about being like, look what I made today. 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 And the thing I realized over time is that the people who love what you do don't care if you shout about it five times a day, which you have to do in the beginning. And then eventually you'll have to shout about it, you know, a couple times a week. But, um, and the people who aren't interested in what you have to do or find you annoying, are going to leave anyway and not the great thing about social media is only the people who want to follow you and listen to what you have to say or what you have to share or what you're making. Um, they're the only ones who are going to be there. So remember that, um, you'll build an authentic audience just by being you and sharing your work. Right. So Mm -hmm. that's really important. Um, and they want to give them the opportunity to support you. Like I have friends that do stuff or have events or something and they'll only post about it that day, an hour before the event. And I'm like, this is a bummer because I like you and I would like to support you. Give me the opportunity to do so by informing me about the ways that I can support you. Right. And the more you share about what you're up to and the more chances are that other people of friends or people who admire your work, who you don't know necessarily, are going to to then share it with their people. Um, so... I imposter syndrome for those who don't know what that term means is basically like this phenomenon that's actually particularly um, hard for women, um, but it's like people who reach a certain level of success and then feel like they're an imposter in that world, right? Where they like, and I definitely went through this. I've written about it on my blog, where I just was like, 
I would show up at the art party and I and I felt like everyone was over in the corner talking about me. Like, oh, well, there's Lisa Congdon. She doesn't really deserve to be here. She's self-taught. She doesn't really know what she's doing. Because deep down inside, I thought there was this sort of like magical thing that I was missing out on that like was like my cred card or my like ID card in the art club. Um, not There's not an art club. I'm being like, I'm being facetious here. But um, and then what I realized is that like you, you have your, you know, you, you gain your own admittance to the art club just by making art and just by being you. And if a lot of people like what you do, you're, you know, if you're lucky. It's not a cause for shame. Cause I actually like had an experience where I started feeling imposter syndrome more intensely than more followers that I got mm. because I thought that the people who were, I thought of as legitimate in the art world or the illustration world were, would look down on me for you know for that for whatever reason and I had to really like work hard to get over that and now it just kind of feels silly to me um but I don't know I I'm I'm very um I think the self-promotion thing I got really good at because um even though I felt anxiety Every day when I woke up about promoting myself and putting my work into the world, I did it anyway. Like, I think it's that stupid saying. It's not a stupid saying, but that old saying, feel the fear and do it anyway. Yeah. You know, it's basically no, I think realizing that no one is not scared. Like, we're all terrified. We all have anxiety. We all have self-doubt. Like, it's part of the human condition. And when you are feeling it and watching everybody else out there share their work and make beautiful things, you think their experience is completely um, flawless and that they're not afraid and that they do it so easily and that you're the only one who's scared. And what helped me was understanding. And I got to understand this because I started becoming friends with a lot of artists that everybody is terrified, including the people that I admired and that um, it's part of the human condition. It's not, it's not just you. And it's part of like part of the creative experience and that universality of it and the sort of like, um, like I started thinking about that a lot and it made it less of a lonely experience. And I just realized like everybody's scared. Yeah. But if I'm going to make anything of my career, I got, I have to like put my work out there because as you said earlier, no one else is going to do it for you. No, it's, it's literally no one else's job. And even if and it is someone else's job, like your publisher or something, they still want you to do, go out That's there right. and do it. And oftentimes they're they're not doing it as well no. as they could be, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and also, I mean, this is like a side tangent, but publishers and agents or whatever, because people ask me all the time, like, how do you find a publisher? But one of the things is showing them that you will go out there and sell your own work. Like, I remember when I was in a band, we, I was like, we were looking at, like, the Kill Rockstars website, and it was like, here's the criteria of, like, bands that we look at basically like blind submissions that will look like are have these people put out their own demo have these people booked their own tour do they regularly play their own shows and if you if you apply that to your art it's just like are you promoting yourself are you putting out your own work are you showing people that you're going to do it whether or not they're supporting you but they should get on board because you're doing this thing and you're like a runaway train yeah and you're getting people on board like no no publisher is going to come to your house and knock on the door to ask to rifle through your files because they're just going door to door on your street and they're just looking for talent. Like that's not, that's not how it's going to work. And they're like, great. You just keep sitting in your basement. We'll deal with everything. Yeah. And it is really hard when you like have a show and nobody and like five people come or, you know, um, or like when you 
post something on Instagram and it gets five likes or whatever. Like it doesn't necessarily feel good, but it's not. But then you just show up and do it the next day and the next day and the next day. And then like maybe 30 days later, you post something that like really resonates with people. And then, you know, that's the thing. Like building a following is not a straight line and it's also does not happen immediately. It's just one of those things you just got to keep showing up and keep posting. Everybody on Instagram or everybody out there who has a lot of sales or a lot of followers started off with zero at one point. Mm -hmm. And they just kept showing up every day even when people weren't paying attention and stopped worrying about like, they kind of like stopped worrying about being scared like and just accepted that it was going to be a scary a scary experience and they were going to do it anyway so yeah and it's all cumulative it is and um and then eventually something will happen that makes it worthwhile yeah and that's kind of up to you what that is yeah because like for me at a certain point when people don't come to shows i take it personally now when my friends don't come to my shows (laughs) but it used you know maybe it used to be like i was like random strangers who don't know me didn't come and now i'm just like Oh, random strangers came, but my friend did. Like, my, my expectations are a moving target. I heard somebody say that before. Right. And they're like, you know, as soon as you hit one, bam, I have a new one. Like, it's just... Well, it's, and it's not waiting around for the perfect circumstances. Like, oh, God, there's this really... Um, I'm trying to think of the name of the band, but there's this great story that um, I heard on NPR once, and it's a pretty famous band now. But, like, they they like started having shows in their basement because they weren't going to wait around for a club to like sign them or whatever. And then they just got as many people as they could to come. And then when they, you know, then they, you know, it's just like, I think we always think that like we have to wait for the right art supplies or the right skills or the right this or that to like launch the thing or do the thing or share the thing. But there is never a right moment, right? You just got to do it, do it with what you have now, even if that thing it's like I look back even to work I was making five years ago and I cringe at it a little bit, <laughs> but that's the work that got me to where I am now. So I have to like embrace it as part of my journey. And um, yeah, yeah. So I kind of somebody I was talking to was like, I don't believe in mistakes. And I was like, it's kind of true. Like, you know, things that I've done, they've all brought me to the place I am right now. Right. Even if like, like Invincible Summer Volume 1, when people are like, I bought your book. And I'm like, Cool, because I was like 19. My frontal lobe wasn't even fully formed. I'm like, please don't read that. I'm like, please don't read that in front of me. I'm glad it exists because it got me to where I am today. Like, do I want people to be like, look at your journal from, you know, from 2001? No, I don't want to see that necessarily, but I do. I do feel like it was important. Okay, somebody wanted to know how did your art end up on pita chips that were given out at the women's march? Um, So this was actually. The pita chips were given out at a at a women's day rally after the women's march. So I the day of the women's march last year here in Portland, I didn't go to DC, I stayed here. Um I came home um after the women's march. Actually we went out to Chinese food because we were really hungry, because I had been shivering because it was really cold that day. And um went to Shandong, mm. got home, and sat down in front of the TV because I think we were like, what the heck's happening in the rest of the country? And I got out my sketchbook, as one does, and started making this like protest art. And I had made a little bit before the march, but that this was like a picture of a pink cat with sharp teeth. And it says, women of the world, this is just the beginning. And then, of course, the part of me who like 
didn't want to offend all the women who had done all of the work for years and years before that. Like, wrote a big disclaimer when I posted on Instagram. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't mean that the work. It, I don't mean to discount what's been done. It's not for, the beginning. Yeah. I mean, it's the beginning. It's, it's a new beginning. Yeah, new beginning. Yeah. So anyway, um, I got about two weeks later. Maybe it was even a week later. I got a email from this advertising agency who was working with Stacy's Pita Chip Company, who was going to produce special bags. Um, here, I'll show you. Oh my god! Are we gonna crunch them right now? We <laughs> can't open it. We can't open it. Oh my god! I do you hear it, listeners. It's so cool. It's just the painting is the entire cover of the Pita Chip bag. Yeah, and so they took, I think there's like, I don't know, maybe eight different female artists whose work they found on Instagram, mm-hmm. um, and they asked, and and I, so they were going to make a small profit to pay for the packaging and stuff, but I think most of the money was going to go back, like go to a, some kind of um, resistance fund of some kind. And um, so I got paid a little bit of money, but it was mostly like a pro bono job. And um, so I had to like scan the artwork and clean it up a little bit because it was in my sketchbook and it was kind of messy. Um, and then they like put it on this pita chip bag. And then what, they were handing the pita chips out in all these various bags at this event in San Francisco. And then um, I got some pictures of some, like this really awesome picture of somebody holding it up in front of City Hall. And I posted that on Instagram. And uh, anyway, that's how it happened. And I just have this one bag, which I don't know that I'll ever open. No, but then I wonder if it's ever going to get weird. I know, it probably will. Um, it's a sample bag, not for sale. Snap anyway, this code to take action for causes you care about. This is so cool. I know. And so it made me love Stacy's pita chips even more because, um, I mean, who doesn't love a good pita chip? Right, they're they're a bit hard on my teeth, but they are delicious. I got more past the hummus comments on this post than, um, wow. yeah, than you probably ever have before. Yeah, and will ever have. But um, yeah, so that's how that's how that happened, and that's I think that's that's an important lesson. Like you, you never. I mean, obviously, I have a lot of followers, so like I do get a lot, obviously exponentially more opportunity. Like opportunity grows often with how many people are sort of following what you do. But you never. But I also know that there are people out there who've just posted one random thing and hashtag it with something, and then their work gets discovered and bought for something in particular. And like you just never know what you post might lead somebody to, you know, to discover you or your work. And that's what I think is the amazing thing about social media is that like there's this untapped potential for friendship, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. or like. Um, I don't know, professional contacts. Um, and that's why it's it's important to always be cool online, not be a jerk, mm-hmm. too, because people see that. Yeah, they do. There's somebody whose project I love that just came out, and then I'm seeing her insecurity play out where she's, like, dissing people that gave her a bad review. It's just, like, a lot of other emotional stuff that's mm-hmm. not filtered. So I'm just – I think I'm going to mute her. I'm going to buy her project, love her project, but maybe not be following super close because I don't really, you know. I like it when people keep it a little professional and friendly online. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, like, talking smack about who left you a bad review on Amazon or whatever is actually, like, 
as a thing to, to watch out for or just keep with you and your, you know, five best friends. Yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely did. I have to say, I'm saying both things that I did post on Facebook when my mom left me a particularly mean review of Fetch <laughs> and my friends went and flagged it as abusive after I posted on Facebook because it really had nothing to do with the book. That was a nice use of Facebook I for me. I posted about that I say, but for the most part, when normal people, like I only read, I do like when people read like, like one star reviews, usually you're like, this is a crazy person. Like usually yeah. people that leave one star reviews for something, you're like, what is up with this yeah. person? And also the reviews will be like so weird and have nothing to do with the product and it's right. usually fun. I have several bad reviews on one of my books, and it's all because the Kindle version sucks. And I'm like, that has nothing to do with the content of the book. Like, don't diss me because the Kindle version is messed up. Yeah. Like, I don't even know, you know. Yeah. Or, like, somebody, like, got a Kindle version of Calling Dr. Laura, but, like, didn't know how to enlarge the frames. (laughs) So they were like, this is so hard to read. And they described it in a way that other users were commenting back to them, like, dude, you need to, like, press the plus button or whatever the thing was. Anyway, but, yeah. So despite the fact that I just said it's it's weird that this person's posting about every person that writes a bad review or a spoiler online, they're like shaming their fans online because they feel nervous. Yeah. I did also do that with my own parent. Yeah. Well, yes. And I also think it's on, it was on your Facebook page where, where it was just like your friends. I think there's a little bit of that is allowed. Yeah. Although you have to be careful these days with anything. Because anyone could screenshot anything. Company ripped me off four or five years ago and it was a really traumatic experience and I like was really bitchy about it online and they, they deserve they deserved 100% of the bitchiness but like I don't think it bode well for like I think there's things that I probably could have stayed away from complaining about mm-hmm. publicly and I but the good thing is like I learned from that experience mm-hmm. I learned like okay if this happens to me again this is how I'm going to handle it and like this is going to be the most professional way to handle it and I was so upset and I just sort of let that all out mm-hmm. without really filtering it or thinking about it. And, um, and I, and I, I don't think I would do that again. Not mm-hmm. that I wouldn't go public with something, but that I would handle it differently. And that's just like part of life is that you learn sometimes the hard way. Yeah. And then, yeah, I, I've had that happen before where somebody ripped me off, which I'd love to tell you about off mic, <laughs> but, um, I, you know, by not by not blasting them in, in that way at that time, just to my friends, then I was able to come to a resolution with them in some way. Well, I think that was part of what happened for me is I did a lot of public shaming and then it got bad. Oh my God, I kind of love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, it's true. It's one of those things that's satisfying at the time, but then in the retrospect, you're like, yeah. that wasn't my, was that my best self? Yeah, was that, probably not. Was that my dream version of myself? <laughs> I don't know. Well... Lisa Congdon, thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, this was so fun. Um, right now, everyone should know that Ponyo is on my lap getting a massage, and Wilfredo is staring longingly into Nicole's eyes. Wilfredo's like, would, maybe you'd like to give me a massage. <laughs> <laughs> that sure would feel nice. Maybe I could just come up on your lap. You could give me some pets. All right. Um, thanks so much for coming yeah, on the podcast, okay. and it's so great to have a Capricorn. Yes, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.